Welcome to Extra Credit, a breezy update on credit card and banking industry developments. I'm Craig LaChapelle. I'm Vice President at TransUnion in our credit card and banking group. I have previous experience in banking and management consulting, so it gives me just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Josh, why don't you introduce yourself? And I'm Josh Turnbull, Vice President of our Community Financial Institutions Group at TransUnion, and have about 20 years of experience working across banks, financial technology companies, and, and other sectors. So looking forward to, to sharing some of those views and hearing what our guests have to say over the months ahead. So Josh, why don't you describe what's the specific mission in this podcast going forward? Craig, every year you and I make predictions to try and identify what's going to be happening in the market and the implications of those on our customers. And now with this podcast, we're taking that public. We'll get some of them right, and we're going to get some of them wrong, and that'll be out there for everyone to, to hear and to see. And as we go through the year, we'll have guests on to really dive deep into those conversations and, and those topics and shed light on it and, and really explore those trends in more detail. And just a warning, uh, we're not that funny, but we promise that we'll try and keep it less boring than it could be. So Josh, I do have a question. Yep. So we, the card, the credit card market development team supports credit card issuers and enterprise banks, for lack of a better term. Your team supports community financial institutions. So Uh, tend to be smaller in terms of asset size, but a lot more of those customers. Do you think there's going to be a big overlap in commonality and interest in these discussions? Craig, I do think there's going to be overlap. At the highest level, the trends are the same, and they impact all of the customers that you and I support. Now, the resources they have, the focus of their businesses, the way they respond to those trends, and the way they create challenges or opportunities may differ. But yeah, the the trends are the same, regardless of what type of financial institution you are or your business model. And that's that's really why we're here. Okay, I'll buy it. Our first episode, we're going to have Paul Siegfried, who leads the card and banking vertical at TransUnion. So if you've been listening, he is our boss. So Josh, you and I have to behave. And of course, we have to have Paul on for our first episode. And we asked Paul to join us to provide a perspective on 2021. So before Craig and I get into predictions for 2022 and lining up people to comment on those, we really wanted to understand what happened these last 12 months. What surprised Paul, what he thought was meaningful and what was noise. And so that's what we've asked him to join us today to provide some thoughts on. And we really wanna hear from you. This is a new podcast and we'd love to know what you're seeing or what you wanna hear more about, or frankly, Tell Craig and me when you think we got it horribly wrong. Please email us at extracredit at transunion.com and let us know what's on your mind. Josh, why don't you provide your cell phone too? I was going to give yours, Craig, (laughs) and your address. Yes, my home address. That'd be fantastic. That's right. That's right. Fruit baskets sent to. Right. Craig, we're about to introduce Paul and and have him join us, but maybe before he joins, what do you think people should know about Paul? Well, there's a lot to know about Paul. Deep industry experience, uh, both from a banking perspective, but also from a uh, network provider perspective. 
and he has brought a lot of gravitas uh, to our industry vertical. Now, I have to say that it's it's review time. So, but all, all seriousness, great guy, a lot of perspective, love working with him. And encyclopedic knowledge of late seventies, early eighties television. You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of that. I think it was an HBO show in, I think it was the nineties or early 2000s, probably the nineties where it was based around a kid who was raised in front of a, a television. And, uh, you know, that's when I think of Paul and his knowledge, I think of that show. And he also, you know, I think one of the things maybe from from being a, a lender for so many years, he always impresses me with just the, the deep knowledge he has of the the actual markets, the, the places in which uh, in which we're doing business. So whether it's, you know, economic factors or industry or, or what have you, there seems to be no limit to, to the things that he's got packed away in his brain. So Paul, thanks for joining us. Craig and I, we asked you to come on to really share some thoughts on what you've seen in this past year and, and some reflections on what that means going into the new year. Before we dig in though, uh, we've got a surprise for you and wanted to spring a little trivia challenge on you that uh, folks who are listening can play along. Craig and I pulled a list of the banks that had the largest credit card balances at the end of 2001. So wanted to see how many of the, the top 10 uh, you could you could name. And again, for folks who are, who are listening, feel free to kind of mentally play along here. Oh my gosh, uh, 2001, <clears throat> I would have to, <clears throat> I don't recall the date of, um, okay, definitely. So probably MBNA, Yep. Uh, was one um, probably could have been um, first USA with bank one, uh, probably two. I don't remember the bank one first USA merger time frame. Might have been around that time. Um, I think maybe it was a little after that because bank okay. one, they're on the list, but not in the top 10. They're like number 13 or something. Okay. All right, so um, First USA, you would have had <clears throat> Chase, um, you would have had, uh, well, probably if it was before, then, then Bank One, the old First Chicago uh, Bank One merger um, would have made them in the top 10, certainly. Uh, City, uh, clearly in the top 10. City was um, number one. Yep, um, let's see. Uh, cap one would have been top 10 at the time. Yes. Yep. Uh, let's see, probably, well, definitely Bank of America would have been top 10. Yes. Um, the question would be, I don't recall if First Union was top 10 at the time. I want to say they were, they were not. Okay. So I don't have them, not according to the FDIC data. Okay. And by Wells the way, we're, we're, we're assessing this by balances. At Wells Fargo? 12. Wells is 12. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm losing it. Um, hmm. Think, think Chicago area. Well, I said first Chicago, but they were they gone? Oh, Discover. There you go. Number two. Uh, and Amex, probably. Yep. Number eight. And How then, many are left? Uh, three, and names that are no longer around. Right. One's New England. 
fleet. Yep. Yep. One Vidian. Yep. Vidian. Yep. And the, the number 10, I would have never guessed. Our old head of international would be proud of you for getting this one. I think that's great. Household. Yep. yep. Number 10. Number 10. Excellent. All right. Well, now that we're uh, now that we're warmed up, uh, we'll fast forward 20 years and and dive into uh, 2021. Paul, we we gave a brief introduction of you before we brought you onto the podcast, but maybe can you share a little bit about your background for folks to get a, an understanding of what you do it to you, and then what's what's brought you here? Sure. Thanks. Uh, so, Paul Siegfried, uh, I have the privilege of leading uh, the card and banking business uh, here at TransUnion. Uh, we are focused. Uh, on understanding the uh, customer needs, the market, the industry uh, for both the top 40 players in the card industry and then the uh, 4,500 community institutions uh, that serve, um, when we think about community banks, credit unions, et cetera. I am uh, a banker by um, trade, uh, spent um, early part of my career at First National Bank of Omaha, uh, and then spent uh, the later uh, part of my career at Fifth Third Bank, uh, where I led the uh, consumer and small business credit card business. Uh, and in between there, I had a, a, a payments experience sandwiched in with uh, Visa, where I was uh, involved in, uh, back in the day, it was member, um, the, the member side or, or sales. Um, and I was in the Midwest uh, region based in Chicago. Thanks, Paul. And I know, it, Craig, I think you share this thought, but certainly one of the things that I enjoy working with you every day is that perspective that you bring from, from um, an operator perspective and then from working across many different institutions um, throughout your career. Yes, and I, I'd add that Josh and my number one goal is to make Paul look good. That's right. And he relies more on Josh for that than me. Uh, depends on the day. So, Paul, let's let's dive into some of these questions that we had. And, and the first one uh, I think is appropriate given that trivia challenge thinking back over time. And, and one of the things that, that you, that I, that Craig, other lenders that we talk to, you know, often reference is, our business is so cyclical. And so if you've been doing this for a while, everything seems kind of familiar. Certainly over the past two years, uh, there have been a lot of nuances and things that, that seem brand new and things that we haven't encountered before. But I'm curious, you know, as you think back to I don't know, the, the COVID times or this past year, what's in there despite everything that's new that, that really does seem familiar? Oh, well, I think the thing that, that seems most familiar um, while we went through a, a difficult time filled with uncertainty, um, the, the resilience of the consumer uh, is always familiar. So the, the confidence uh, that consumers have that's really driven by um, their, both their needs, but also their wants. Um, and most of those needs are filled by um, changes in their life. Uh, so um, if you need more space, uh, you might need a bigger place to live. Why would you need more space? Because you went from 
two children to four children, um, or you needed or had a desire uh, to change your working location and you wanted a place to store um, many, many books that you might have bought throughout your, your lifetime. And so you needed um, room for that. So I, I think that- Like you're speaking to me there, Paul. Right, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I think that, you know, that, that it's those um, decisions uh, that, that people make um, based upon their situation. And, and those tend to drive um, uh, the, the U.S. economy out of whatever um, recessed position it might be in into a more forward position. Great. And what, Paul, what does seem kind of unique when you think about the past year, the, the past 18 months or so that, um, you know, some nuances we haven't seen before? I think, you know, while the, the whole industry, I think, prepared for the worst, uh, which was, you know, in hindsight, still probably the right thing to do, always make sure that we're prepared for the worst. I think the, the way that the industry uh, addressed uh, the situation and then in parallel with the public policy response, meaning the government response. So first of all, the lenders were very open to uh, doing something different. So before the CARES Act was uh, really even uh, put forward, lenders were trying to understand how to be more flexible. How can I um, address <clears throat> the needs of the consumer uh, here now today and over the next six to 12 months? And certainly when the CARES Act came and, and then there was a, a governmental response, um, they were very well prepared uh, to address that. I think that while the accommodations were there and while certainly the government put through public policy liquidity into the market by way of uh, direct payments to consumers, uh, ultimately the resiliency um, was faster than I think what we all expected. So we, we certainly saw uh, this low mobility state, a lockdown state for um, second quarter of, of uh, 2020, uh, but then certainly to see over the next two quarters a, a pretty vibrant return uh, to market. And that I, I think part of that goes to um, the rapid shift to a mobile work environment where industries that were able to stay open, which ultimately most employees were able to continue working, um, and uh, certainly th those who are not, and, and it was an unfortunate situation, uh, but I think the, all the parties involved have tried to do the best they can by uh, every consumer. Uh, and, and again, I think that certainly shows so that as we move into 21, uh, we've seen a, a dramatic return uh, to commerce. Uh, and by the second quarter of 21, um, it, we certainly see uh, pace uh, that's ahead of where we were in 2019 in terms of both growth rates, uh, but also just raw uh, growth numbers and in many categories, not all. Uh, certainly card balance is an example, still continue to drag. Uh, and again, I think that's more as a result of dramatic decreases in balances, liquidity um, with the consumer, uh, and then also still somewhat um, the reduction of, in global travel. So um, a reduction in consumers' ability to spend money everywhere that they were spending money prior to uh, the pandemic. Is there anything that stands out from this past year that you observed in consumer behavior that's, that's interesting? 
Yeah, I think we've seen a couple of things that are uh, certainly interesting. There's always key insights, no matter what uh, type of market. But I think as we, we've moved into the growth mode in 21, I, I think, you know, a couple of things. One is we see this higher liquidity state uh, and, and what we mean by a higher liquidity state, meaning that consumer payments uh, on their uh, credit cards continue to be higher than they were before uh, and balances are lower. So even as spending is returning uh, to their cards and, and balances certainly are starting to grow, um, we, we still see uh, elevated level of payments. And so I think one, it, it, it's a sign of optimism where uh, consumers have confidence in, in what they're doing. Um, and I think we've also seen, and, and we saw this right around 2019, is the coming of age of, of Gen Z. Uh, and uh, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time over the last five years talking about millennials, and now it's really time to start talking about Gen Z. And, and Gen Z uh, certainly has um, a confidence uh, in its um, patterns. Uh, that, that I don't think we were expecting. While they have a need for credit, uh, because they're now 22, I want to say the oldest Gen Zs are 25, um, they're confident in what they're doing. So they're confident uh, to go out and borrow. And so we see growth rates um, with originations and with uh, loan balances uh, with Gen Z. Uh, I, I think we want to go back and compare it to, to maybe the other generations. Uh, but it's always hard to also compare uh, because the markets change as well along the way. But we certainly have seen resiliency uh, in Gen Z really moving forward here. Yeah. And so you, you talked about balances and, and payments there and, and a little earlier in terms of things that you're watching. I'm curious, either with consumer behavior or just with the, the wider world, as we get rolling into 22, what do you have your, your eye on that you think is going to be telling or important to to kind of keep a, a watch on? Yeah, I think there's a, I hate to say a handful. I wish there was only one thing we needed to, to, <laughs> to worry about, but you know, I think there are a handful of things that, um, that we want to keep our eye on. I, I think, um, first of all, on, on the economic side is the impact of inflation. How will inflation affect uh, consumers? How will uh, that then affect their use uh, of lending products, specifically credit cards, um, and will that impact consumer confidence? And if so, how? Uh, and how can we, TransUnion, work with lenders to uh, understand that better uh, and to position uh, themselves uh, in that, that situation? I think the macro uh, situation around uh, just the interoperability of the economies around the world, uh, travel, uh, and you know any deviation of uh, this pandemic or, or viruses is something we want to keep an eye on. Um, you know, certainly things can change. We saw it change in in uh, the first quarter of of 2020. Uh, you know, hopefully we've learned lessons in how to address these things, and that that will will aid. Uh, all of us and all the economies going forward. Uh, but I think it's something we have to, to always have in the back of our minds and be prepared for. I think um, more specifically, when we think about um, going into 22, thinking of 
It's that consumer confidence with the liquidity. And then what's the long-term impact to balances uh, for credit cards? Um, you know, are consumers borrowing money? How are they borrowing money? Um, do the products resonate with them as well as they did? Um, certainly we've seen in, in um, and, and this was released uh, in the, for the second quarter, uh, we saw the highest number of rig originations we've seen in the credit card industry, 19.3 million bank card accounts, um, not private label, just bank card, uh, which was, uh, again, the highest we've, we've seen, uh, which is tremendous sign of, of consumer resiliency. Uh, and, you know, we do expect to see growth associated with that across balances as well. Uh, certainly is a question, you know, will that growth rate continue? Um, expect that to continue, maybe not with, you know, with moderation, not necessarily um, to continue to, to increase from that point, but, you know, continue to see strength. But I, I think that's where um, what we have our eye on is, is how are consumers behaving? Uh, are lenders um, doing what they can and uh, to enable um, their goals and, and ultimately where the, the consumer is looking to go? You, you really walk through what I would say are the demand dynamics and consumer demand. Really want to touch now on supply or how the marketplace is responding to this consumer demand and, and how competition is changing. First, question revolves around, I'm going to use air quotes, new payment forms. It's specifically buy now, pay later. It's been getting a lot of attention and many of our depository customers and payment customers are trying to understand what this means for them. You know, is it transient? Is it a threat? Or is it an, an opportunity? So Paul, can we get your perspective on buy now, pay later? specifically? Yeah, Craig. So I, I think when, um, when we think first about buy now, pay later, I think it's important to put it uh, in perspective or, or the context of uh, point of sale lending, first of all, is not something that is new. Uh, in fact, point of sale lending, uh, when you reach back in time, uh, whether it was uh, COD, cash on delivery, uh, which is really how Sears Catalog built their franchise uh, in the 1800s, uh, which I think is at least 130 to 140 years old, um, to then merchant credit <clears throat> and many merchants uh, providing credit at the point of sale um, by the, the early uh, 1900. So again, over 100 years of, of history of uh, financing at the point of sale. Uh, what makes BNPL different? Um, well, what makes BNPL different uh, than maybe a 12-month point of sale financing solution in 2018 is that uh, I think two things. One is the targeted amount to be financed uh, for BNPL tends to be smaller. Uh, so while a consumer may have uh, been financing a 12-month, a 36-month uh, point-of-sale loan in 2017-2018, uh, that might have been more towards $1,000, uh, whereas uh, BNPL is south of $400 in terms of the, the average amount. And then you get to um, what's different is 
uh, it's a pay in for product, meaning I, I pay one fourth today and I pay um, three fourths uh, over three additional payments over the next uh, six weeks. And really the, the difference there is that um, what BNPL has become for the consumer is a way to uh, delay paying for all the goods today, uh, but still paying them over very, very short term, uh, meaning uh, over the next six weeks. And, and when we think about our lives over the next six weeks, um, I know it's hard for me to always think about things over the next six weeks, um, but I know that if I'm employed and I expect to be employed, there's a couple things that are going to happen over the next six weeks, which is I'm going to get paid. Uh, if I get paid twice a month or if I, if I get paid every two weeks, um, I now have a situation where I can spread that uh, over uh, multiple pay periods. And so I, I think one, let's start with, is there a consumer benefit uh, to this product? And I think clearly there are segments of consumers uh, that uh, find this product to be beneficial. And it's beneficial because of that very near-term, short-term cash flow management uh, element to the product. When we think about um, that appeal then and the segment of, of consumers with appeal, you know, our research so far um, indicates that um, really when, when it comes to consumers that have credit cards that are willing to, to, to take a BNPL loan, they're really the most active credit users. So right now it, it's hard for us to say that necessarily it replaced a credit card transaction or did it replace a different type of transaction or is it a transaction that never would have happened? These are consumers very aggressively acquiring credit um, and it seems to be one more type of, of product that they're using. Um, there's a significant number of BNPLs that are really not credit users. They're credit diverse people. And uh, this is somewhat of their, their step into uh, the credit side of the business. So let's go into, we'll call the traditional uh, payment space. You know, thinking in particular about the growth of different credit card issuers over the last five, six, seven years, it's, it's really interesting because it wasn't long ago that regional banks were outsourcing their card programs. But over the past few years, we've seen that reverse. We've also seen um, money come into the space backing either fintech new entrants or spin outs from the con consumer lending fintechs. In your opinion, what's driving that? And how do you see that changing in the next few years, if at all? Well, so I, I think, Craig, as you mentioned, you know, there has been a, uh, a change. If I, you know, as you mentioned, if we go back to uh, over 20, 25 years ago, uh, we saw that uh, regional uh, organizations were selling their portfolios uh, into uh, national organizations. They uh, were able to accomplish a couple of, uh, of things um, with that move. Uh, meaning one, they, they could get certainly a premium for the portfolio, and then, then they could also um, reduce the loan loss reserves. And you know, certainly it's no uh, secret if, if credit cards have a higher loss rate, uh, then the reserves have to be held uh, to accommodate that. Uh, the, the thing I think that um, when we think of the regional banks or uh, community banks, 
that I think they have uh, found a new uh, path with credit cards starts first with the relationship. It starts first with the consumer. Um, these organizations want to provide products to meet the needs of their customers or their members. And certainly filling out that relationship wallet, when we think about um, the financial picture of a, a consumer, uh, a credit card is part of that uh, experience or part of completing that wallet. Um, I think the one thing that has changed uh, in 25 years is as uh, these organizations, as the community and regional uh, organizations look at their products, uh, they do seem to have uh, an approach uh, that is trying to uh, share more of the value with their customer, meaning they want rewards programs that are highly competitive. Uh, they want to ensure that uh, they're meeting multiple segments uh, of, of uh, card usage, uh, where 25 years ago, perhaps they only had one card offering. Uh, today, you might um, look at a website or walk into a branch uh, for a community organization, and they have at least two, if not three, four, or five products in, in some of them. So I, I, I do see that um, organizations have worked diligently uh, to meet the, the needs of their uh, customer or member uh, in these ages. And I, I think that that's um, the lead uh, driver for their growth. Uh, as far as the the operation of the credit card, uh, certainly the economics are the economics. And so um, you do need to, to also ensure if you're going to have a program uh, that you're budgeting sufficiently to accomplish the goal you want in terms of whether it's new account goal, uh, new account growth uh, as a goal, or if it is uh, growing existing balances and supporting those uh, customers. Great. Thanks, Paul. You know, and you mentioned the economics card programs, at least at scale, traditionally have the highest return on assets and really see that being a driver for, I would say, consumer lending, fintechs moving into uh, the card space. An unfair question coming up, but do you see that return on assets um, premium uh, continuing or the threshold needed to achieve scale? changing going forward? So I think that there's two things. So to answer the question outright, do, do I think it continues to go forward? Sure, I do. Um, and the, the reason why credit cards remain viable, and I believe will, will continue to have the highest uh, return uh, of products uh, with most retail banks uh, is uh, the use of data in how they manage their programs. So the ability to use data to, to discern risk uh, on a individual by individual basis. Now, I think the one thing that goes with that is that um, there are segments of consumers uh, when you do that, that become a little bit less or marginally uh, profitable, uh, meaning um, the, the lowest risk uh, group, uh, so folks that we might see as super prime, um, they're probably still going to be the lowest uh, revenue, or I'm sorry, net revenue. Uh, they'll, they'll produce a lot of revenue on interchange, but won't necessarily produce a whole lot of interest income. Um, and so the, the question is, uh, how much of that 
um, has to be shared by way of reward programs or other benefits. Um, and I do see that being marginalized over time uh, because the data works both ways, meaning if I can find uh, consumers and, and, and offer them a product that offers a, a strong return, um, there's other consumers that I'm just not going to get that strong return on, again, because I've, I've really cast uh, a very wide net here um, between uh, high-risk uh, and low-risk consumers. That's great, Paul. Thank you. I do have one last follow-up question. Can you talk to us about some of the challenges that uh, our customers or new customers may have entering the credit card space? And I'm really thinking specifically to technology because mm -hmm. that has driven some M&A activity trying to get scale there uh, in the past. Yeah, so I, when we think about challenges for the industry, uh, resource is number one as far as a challenge, um, whether it be technology or whether it be people. Uh, certainly, uh, keeping up with technology uh, is a challenge, will continue to be a challenge because technology keeps getting better. It keeps getting faster. Uh, and, and that's a tremendous benefit. And we've seen that tremendous benefit, by the way, drive down uh, where 20, 25 years ago, the technology and the resource was available only for, we'll say, the top five to 10 uh, card lenders in the country. And, and we've seen that change over the last 25 years, where uh, now certainly it's not uncommon to have uh, top 50, top 100 uh, lenders using the same type of technology uh, and certainly accessing resources um, that are statistically minded folks who can do modeling uh, or make uh, very detailed decisions uh, around how to manage uh, the card lending uh, questions at hand. Um, but I, I do think it's the biggest challenge because, and I, I go back to um, one of the things uh, that we started out with today, um, which is what has changed. And as we've seen a, a change in mobility uh, in the country over the last year and a half in 2020 and 2021, um, that's really leading to uh, an ability for uh, an organization located somewhere um, to attract talent that doesn't have to work in that location. Uh, but at the same time, it certainly is um, ripe for turnover um, as a competing factor. Uh, again, if I don't need to, to, to be physically present in a single place uh, and I can work anywhere, it means the top 100 banks can attract people from all over the country uh, or over the world. Um, and that, that seemingly would be a very positive thing uh, into how they run and, and attract their resources. But again, it also means that it's a much more competitive state uh, that we live in. Uh, so much more competitive to, to go get the talent and again, use those technology resources that are there. Paul, the idea of financial inclusion and, and the underlying principle of, of lenders doing well, when consumers do well, th that's not new, but it's something we've certainly been hearing a little bit more about over the last two years. How has that conversation changed since 2019 or before? Yeah, Josh, I, I think that um, it is it, it has changed a lot, uh, I think, uh, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, I think that uh, financial access and financial inclusion is something that uh, we at TransUnion, uh, since I got here, uh, have 
um, you know, I didn't start it certainly, but uh, prior to me getting here, you know, I, I think for a decade, uh, TransUnion has been investing heavily into um, a couple of different directions. Um, one is alternative data. So bringing in data uh, that can inform uh, behavior about consumers uh, that's beyond just traditional core credit. And then also uh, around trended data. And uh, trended data is looking at, uh, from, from a TU perspective, a 30 months view uh, of that consumer and how they're behaving and how that can uh, enable financial access and inclusion is um, they can have their own uh, set of products and, and we can observe how they're behaving with their set of products and over time uh, be able to uh, provide effectively a trended score that's going to, to look at that performance, the payment performance over time, not just looking at the single month, the single event, um, but look at it over that time. When we think about more recently uh, at, at TransUnion, we've been focusing on trended scores. And as we close uh, 2021, um, in our community uh, financial institution side of the business, um, we'll end up selling uh, probably just over 30% of all scores uh, in, you know, here in, at the end of the year uh, being trended scores. Um, and again, those enable uh, greater access and inclusion. Uh, so, um, you know, this wasn't necessarily driven uh, by, I'll say, the regulatory uh, insights or pressures. This has been driven by uh, TransUnion's drive to, to use information for good. Uh, but we're certainly um, supportive and glad to see additional uh, motivation in the market uh, for financial access and, and financial inclusion. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Paul. Craig, I think you had one, one last question to take us home. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to shift gears. Paul is definitely a product of the 70s and 80s. You ever seen the HBO show Dream On from the 80s? It reminds me of Paul's ability uh, to reference different television shows. So on that topic, Paul, one or two shows from the 70s or 80s that you think are underrated and that you recommend we take a look at? Oh, my gosh. So certainly... Um... Yeah, I am. I am definitely a product of seventies and eighties. There is so much to choose from. Um, you know, interesting one um, that I will just say one of my favorite television shows uh, from I think it was late seventies into early eighties. Um, that traditional sitcom approach, but really reached into a lot of difficult topics, was Barney Miller. Um, Barney Miller, you know, always had to, and, and it wasn't just him, it was his characters. One, the characters were, were very deep. So you could identify with each one of the, the investigators, inspectors, whatever they were in, in, in the room. Um, but then they addressed some issues of the day. Um, and so I, I, I would say that was certainly one I looked forward to because you could, um, you know, understand where their characters were coming from. Um, certainly I, I could punt and just say, oh, Cheers was a great show as well. So another great one, if you want to reach back to the 70s, uh, that again, I think it, from my perspective, never missed a week uh, of watching this show. Uh, and for the most part dealt with 
with issues of the day, but you know, uh, struggled in its later years would be happy days. Certainly, I think it, it played itself out at least two or three times. Um, but any show that that can actually coin the uh, the 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 daily use of the term "jump the shark" um, has to be a show that's uh, that was worth watching. So, um, uh, the, you know, the, the funny thing, of course, is that uh, Fonzie, if you go back to Happy Days, I think he had two of those events. So the first event was I think he jumped barrels at uh, Arnold's Drive-in uh, in his motorcycle once. Um, and then, of course, jumped the shark uh, in the Happy Days Hawaii episode. Right. I mean, who can forget the Valachi Crunch and Pinky Pescadero? <laughs> absolutely. And uh, I always look forward to this when, when Pinky would show up uh, on, on the show. But uh, then also, you know, produce uh, the spinoffs that it produced. So yeah. uh, when, when Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy because Mork did make his uh, debut on Happy Days. Yep. Um, and then, uh, of course, Joni Loves Chachi. You you forgot that one. On and a purpose. great theme song. On purpose. Yeah. Oh, great. No, this has been fantastic. Paul, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, it, has been, it has been fun to have you on for this inaugural episode of, of Extra Credit. My pleasure. And uh, thank you all. And uh, thanks for, uh, for throwing this together. Well, Josh, that was a really good conversation with Paul. I'm glad we invited him on. It was. Well, he certainly provided a great recap for a lot of the trends and forces that we've seen in 21. Yeah, well, I think I hope people enjoyed that and certainly come back in a couple of weeks because Craig and I are going to be back. And you know, we asked Paul questions about the year past and, and what he observed. And Craig and I are going to be back making predictions on what we think is going to happen in 22. And then every month we'll be back after that with a, a special guest to really dive deep into some of those topics and get their perspective on what they're seeing and what they expect to see. In the meantime, we'd love to hear what you thought of Paul's comments. And frankly, we just love to know what's on your mind or if you have questions for us. And so email us at extracredit at transunion.com. Craig, before we wrap it up, just to get us in the mood for the predictions we're going to be making in a couple of weeks, I've got a question for you, not related to card and banking, uh, but thinking about 22, who do you think is gonna be taking home some serious model, whether it comes to uh, you know TV shows or, or music acts, who's on your short list? Wow, that is a great question. I I'm, I'm be honest, I'm not that hip and in touch. Fair enough. So I, I do like this practicing forecast bits and putting us right on the spot. So I'll do the same to you. you know, okay. thinking, at, thinking about 2022, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to put it in the uh, genre, the category of sports. Oh, man. Let's focus it very specific on the Chicago Bears. In 2022, Will their current coach, Matt Nagy, still be coaching? That's part one. And the second question is, who will their starting quarterback be? So I know that the Chicago Bears are the football team. I would have had no idea that Matt Nagy is the coach had you not prompted me with that one. So I'm going to go for uh, going to go for no on the coach. And... You know, I think the only quarterback I know is Aaron Rodgers. I think he's in Green Bay, right? Correct. So, okay. So just, you know, not knowing. Are you, su are you suggesting that Aaron Rodgers will be the starting quarterback for the Bears next year? 
No, I'm I'm I ha I know one professional quarterback, and so given that my options are are one name, that's the name I'm going to throw on the hat. Do I think it's likely? No, but you know, fourth to fill in the blank, it's a possibility. Eric, it's a possibility because he's up for uh, the end of his contract. So yeah, it, stranger things have happened. I love those predictions, Josh. All right. Well, Our as the year marches on, we'll see. Uh, hopefully, hopefully our uh, card and banking predictions are a little more. Uh, a little more realistic, but we'll see what happens. And and to the point. Well, I think that's a, a great way to conclude. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks where we share our 2022 predictions. Talk to you then. Mm -hmm.